0: Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some
1: of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. Are you up to speed with some of the most progressive programs that are available to medical device companies uh, with the FDA, things like the Expedited Access Pathway or the Breakthrough Devices Program. I would encourage you to listen to this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast to learn a little bit more about these programs as I explore them with Mike Drews from Vascular Sciences. Hello, and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host and founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. You know, sometimes I come across things that you know they're they're new and surprising and, and innovative, <laughs> and and exciting uh, to me. And you know, they're they're really progressive type of programs. and And then I talk to my good friend Mike Drews from Vascular Sciences, and he's like, "Oh, John, this is this is stuff I've been working on for a long time." And today's one of those topics where. Uh, that might be the case. And and the topic I want to talk about is a couple of exciting new programs from FDA. One is known as the Breakthrough Devices Program or BDP, and the other is the Expedited Access Pathway or EAP. So Mike, welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast.
0: Well, thanks, John. Always a pleasure to speak with you and your
1: audience. Uh, You got it. And you had sent me an email Recently, saying, "Hey, these are some exciting programs and and um, programs where you've been doing a lot of bit of a lot of work and and I, and I confess I I don't know that much about them. So, um, do you mind taking a few moments and talking a little bit about the BDP and the EAP?"
0: Yeah, absolutely, John. Uh, thanks for the opportunity to delve into this uh, uh, very important topic. So, in a nutshell, FDA for many many years has had a, a variety of programs to try to encourage companies on the device side of the universe but also on the drug side of the universe to develop uh, products to meet unmet clinical needs and so on and the expanded access program uh, or pathway and the breakthrough device program are sort of the latest uh, 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 in that progression of of programs so starting out with the expanded access pathway Um, That was originally created back in 2015, Um, primarily intended to, as I said, uh, encourage companies to develop devices where there's an unmet clinical need in a life-threatening or an irreversibly debilitating disease. This was typically limited to high-risk devices, i.e., PMA, Class III devices, as well as new or novel devices um, where there was no predicate, so that would include the de novo. It's interesting to note that in the original EAP program, the 510K was not included in that particular program. As we'll talk about, that was added later as part of the 21st Century Cures Act in in, uh, in 2016. But basically, the overall goal, as, as most people can imagine, was to reduce the time and the cost of bringing one of these New or uh, high-risk kinds of products uh, to, uh, to market from from development to market um, uh, without actually changing the approval standards. This is another thing that that a lot of people don't understand, and that is, it's not that we have to do less work. That is, um, uh, it's not that we don't ha- that we have to do less testing, benchtop animal, in some cases clinical, it's that we're going through the process in a more efficient manner. Um, but unfortunately, that part of the, the program is often not, not emphasized. And I get calls from a lot of companies now uh, wanting to pursue uh, not just the EAP, but now most recently the BDP, the Breakthrough Device Program, because they think that it's a shortcut to uh to getting onto the market they think that it's it's less work it's more efficient but it's not less but it's not less work we can get into that further as we go john
1: yeah okay so key thing i heard there is it's it's um it's a a alternate pathway but it's not a shortcut pathway and i and i think that's kind of interesting that you know a, a, a lot of medical device companies were still looking for that shortcut and and folks um if you've heard Mike and I on the podcast before, or whether uh, this, this might be your first time listening to Mike and I chat, there's no shortcuts. There's still the, the need to do the work that's involved. This is just you know a, a, a more innovative path to try to get that product to market. Uh, a little bit more efficiently, uh, but it's not a shortcut. So that's ex- that's exactly
0: right, John. And maybe we should fast forward to to today. Yeah. Because although the uh, ec- the expanded access program still exists, largely it's been uh, it's been uh, replaced, if you will, by the newer breakthrough devices program, the BDP. That, as I mentioned a moment ago, was created uh, at the end of. 2016 as part of the 21st Century Cures Act, and that Congress, in its infinite wisdom, took a, a broader approach because, among other things, um, and we can talk about the criteria of the BDP in a moment, John. They have, in, uh, they do allow now uh, 510k devices to qualify for the BDP. Whether they should or not, that's sort All of right. a philosophical question, but what uh, they do uh and that and one other thing i'll mention uh just a few months ago back in october of 2017 fda crea- uh released a uh guidance specifically on the breakthrough de- uh, device program uh if anybody is seriously interested i suggest um taking a look at this guidance although to be honest the only important part of the guidance in my opinion is uh just the criteria for the program and that's literally copied and pasted from the 21st Century Cures Act. So there's really not a lot in that particular guidance. And one other thing I'll mention quickly, John, is you and I have talked about uh, the importance of communication with the agency many times, including the pre-submission process or the pre-sub. There is a specific um, type of pre-sub now uh, that was created specifically for the BDP. So for any companies that are seriously considering taking advantage of this option, I would recommend two things. First of all, they should talk to somebody like you or I, who who you know who who does this kind of thing. But also, they should take a look at the guidance uh, for the BDP program, and they should ta- and they should definitely take this to the FDA as that type of a pre-sub to make sure that they qualify.
1: All right, good, really good tips, and and folks, you know one of the key things that. You should know about Mike Drews and his background with vascular sciences. I mean, he's worked uh, a lot with not only medical device companies but also the regulatory agencies. and And if there's an expert in regulatory strategy, Mike's your guy. So even if you know you're <laughs> you're looking for that quick path, whatever that might be, for whatever reason, uh, it's good that you reach out to him because you know Mike knows about all of these different programs and and the different vehicles and. You know the pre-sub is is certainly one of those programs that you know you and I have talked about quite a few times, and I suspect we'll talk about quite a few more times. It's such a great um, program for for medical device companies to engage with the FDA uh, early in the process to figure out the, the most viable uh, path for for your new technology. Um, so, Mike, for those companies that are thinking, you know, th- this might be new to them the EAP, the BDP, the 21st century cures, and so on. What, I mean, aside from looking at the guidance, I mean, how do I determine uh, whether or not something that I'm working on could even qualify? I mean, is there, is there beyond the guidance, is there, is there some sort of device category or, or some sort of therapy or technology that's better suited for these programs?
0: Well, that's a great place to take this conversation further, John. And let's drill into specifically the criteria, the eligibility requirements, if you will, uh, to get into the EAP or now BDP programs. And by the way, thank you very much for those very flattering comments. I, I appreciate oh, sure. that. So there's really only a couple of criteria uh, in order to get into this program. Uh, and um, like all regulation, John, as well as you know, on the quality side as well, it's written very broadly, very, very vague, very nebulous. So it can be interpreted in many different ways. First of all, as I said, Congress has expanded the BDP. It is, uh, devices are now eligible from all uh, pathway categories. I mentioned the PMA and the de novo earlier, but mm-hmm. it also now includes the 510K and pretty much any device, regardless of classification. As well as regardless of regulatory pathway, could possibly be uh, eligible for the BDP program if it meets the following criteria. So, the first criteria is that the device provides a more efficient, more effective treatment or diagnosis of a life threatening or irreversible, irreversibly debilitating disease or condition. That's criteria number one. And criteria number two, you're required to meet at least one of the following criteria. The device represents a breakthrough technology. And of course, how we define the phrase breakthrough technology is largely up to us, especially, you know, we we know, John, that the vast majority of, of folks in our audience are working on 510k devices. On one hand, um, it's pretty hard to argue that Uh, a device that's eligible for the 510K is a breakthrough technology if it's substantially equivalent to another device already on the market. But it can be done, and I've actually had a few devices successfully uh, under the BDP program uh, as a 510K. So it depends on how you define breakthrough technology. Uh, Another criteria is that um, no approved or cleared alternative exists Now, again, that seems contrary to uh, the 510K, but this is right out of the 21st Century Cures Act. So uh, you can spin this a little bit, maybe if your labeling is a little bit different, maybe uh, if your technology is a little bit different. My favorite example is if you have a device on the market that's currently being used off-label, then technically... No other approved or cleared alternative exists because as you know, John, FDA doesn't regulate the practice of medicine. So if a device is being used off-label, then that could qualify here. The third, and by the way, we have to meet one of these four requirements, not all four of them, although I always try to write it. I'm writing a a BDP justification for a program right now, and we're trying to address all four criteria. So the third criteria is the device offers some clinically meaningful advantage over existing approved or cleared alternatives. For example, a decrease in hospitalization or an increase in quality of life. I would like to think, John, that all devices do that <laughs> regardless of whether or not they, um, uh, they, they qualify for this program. And then the fourth is uh, sort of a, a really touchy-feely one and that is the ability of the device. Uh, oh, sorry, the availability of the device is in the best interest of patients. Uh, again, I would like to think that that would apply to all medical devices, not just BDP devices. But that's exactly what the uh, what the uh, the twenty first twenty first century cures access. Okay. So let me just repeat because I went through that pretty quickly. Let me just repeat the first criteria is the device provides a more effective treatment or diagnosis of a life-threatening or uh, irreversibly debilitating disease. That's requirement number one. And requirement number two, we have to meet at least one of the following. The device represents a breakthrough technology. There's no other approved or cleared alternative. The uh, device offers clinically meaningful advantages over uh, other existing devices. And finally, the availability of the device is In the best interest of patients. I can't emphasize this last point enough, John. That's exactly what the regulation says. How we interpret that regulation is 100% up to us. As I like to say, regulation is all about the interpretation of words and our ability to defend our interpretation. So you know, those are the words that I just shared with you and your audience right out of the regulation. How we interpret those words is totally up to us, and how we go and sell our interpretation to the FDA is totally up to us. Because I've never bought into the logic that so many seem to think, and that is that somehow that FDA's interpretation of a certain set of words is more, more uh, correct than my interpretation. It's just simply, you know, they don't know anything more than, than we do.
1: Yeah, as I say, if I, I, um, as you shared that, if I squint, I mean, I can can almost see just about every medical device uh, known to man could almost fit into those criteria, right?
0: Well, you know, not to be cynical, John, but I think you are exactly right, and uh, not to get off on too much of a tangent, but... Quite frankly, we can't underestimate the importance of politics here, because when you look at how this regulation, specifically the 21st Century Cures Act, came into place, and uh, again, I don't want to get too uh, politically technical here, but when you look at the number of electoral college votes coming from the states with the largest medical device companies, uh, you you, you start to understand why regulation gets written the way that it is. So Congress is, is casting a very broad net here. As I said earlier, whether they should or not, that's a different topic. But that's the regulation. As I said, this is, it's now up to us to interpret it. But right. As a result, I'm getting lots of calls, a growing number of calls. From companies hey we've heard about this breakthrough device program. Uh, is this something that we can take advantage of? Is this something that will allow us to get our device onto the market quicker or easier, Kind of like the wellness exemption? You know I would put it in right. the same bucket uh, as we've talked about that before as well
1: sure so um You know, obviously, mechanics aside, I guess I'm a little curious. Have have there been any technologies that you're aware of or that you've worked on that you're able to disclose, of course, um, that have been through this program successfully?
0: Well, okay. so let me say let me say it this way. I've taken now uh, probably about five or six devices. Remember, specifically, the BDP was only created uh, uh, less than a year, year ago. Uh, so I've taken about five or six devices now to the FDA specifically for the BDP. Uh, the vast majority of those have qualified for the BDP program. In other words, FDA says, you know, they bought into our arguments for the, the justification and we can go into that in more detail how we, how we do that justification if you want. Um, but I'm just a little bit reluctant to mention the specific ones, John, because although they're in the BDP program now, they're still under development. They're still under review. By the way, one of the advantages of the BDP program, uh, and uh, this is something that I I actually agree with FDA on, is they encourage people, or at least they say they encourage people, to come to the FDA very early in the development process. Uh, You do not have to have you you do not have to be at the point of design freeze. In some cases, you don't even have to have a working prototype. You can, to a certain extent, go to them with a concept, with what I call a virtual device, and say, you know, we're intending to design the device to, to work this way. We're intending that the device is going to do this, this, and this. If assuming that we can do all these things, you know, would it qualify for the BDP? That's the essence of the program. If if Congress and the FDA really want to encourage companies to bring these kinds of new and novel and high risk devices to market as soon as possible, that's the kind of very early collaboration that we need between the company and the FDA.
1: You know, I really like that point, uh, last point, a great deal. Um, and let me pull in some some recent. Um, uh, discussion that I saw, I don't remember exactly which group, but one of the medical device groups on, on LinkedIn, someone had posed a question about proof of concept. Is there any value in proof of concept in today's day and age? And I, I, I'm a, a big fan. I think there's always value in proof of concept. And and you've just given a regulatory reason for why a proof of concept uh, has a lot of credence because you know I don't have to have that design freeze. I can have a concept even a virtual concept in this case and be able to present that to to FDA to determine you know this alternate pathway to get my device cleared which you know knowing that pathway you know how I'm going to pursue the regulatory waters if you will is important to a lot of things from a product development standpoint it determines in large cases, all the things that I need to do, whether from a preclinical or a clinical standpoint, it may even influence how much, or actually we can't. It most definitely will influence the amount of funding that I'm going to need uh, during the design and development efforts uh, to commercialize a product. So I, I really like that concept of, of being able to go to the FDA with an idea, really, uh, to, to help determine this pathway.
0: Well, I'm glad you do, John, and I very much like it as well, but i got to be honest with you and your audience. You know, I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't point out not just the good, but the bad and the ugly as well, and that is FDA is not used to that. Uh, In spite of what the politicians will have us believe and in spite of what the guidance might say— They're not used to seeing devices very, very early in the product development cycle. They're much more used to seeing devices either at the point of design freeze or very close to the point of design freeze. So even though FDA publicly, and this is not a criticism, just uh, an observation, at least based on my real-world experience, uh, even though FDA says these things, uh, that's not necessarily always... uh, what happens in reality. And I can share with you one case, uh, one situation I'm involved in right now. The company, uh, went to the FDA, uh, trying to qualify for the BDP program, the breakthrough device program and were unsuccessful. FDA, uh, basically, uh, um, said no. And then they asked me to come in and help, which is, uh, Unfortunately, often the case. Uh, If they would have asked me to help first, they probably wouldn't be in the situation. But nonetheless, in doing a little forensic analysis, I realized a couple of things. First of all, I realized that as part of the pre sub, one of the questions they never asked was Have we confirmed that we qualify for the BDP? That's number one. So that's sort of, you know, don't overlook the obvious. And number two, the responses that the questions that FDA did give back were all technical in nature and i mentioned earlier john the breakthrough devices um program guidance that came out the the end of last year one of the important things in that guidance and i personally disagree with this but this is what uh it says in the guidance is that uh, a bdp pre sub should li- should be limited only to the bdp status in other words you cannot sort of combine it with uh, a more traditional pre-sub where you would include regulatory strategy, you would include testing matrix, you would include um, uh, clinical data, and so on and so on. Uh, In an ideal world, I would like to do one pre-sub where we include both the BDP designation as well as those other things, but at least for right now, according to the guidance, and by the way, guidance is guidance, it's not binding, Um, but We have to do it sort of in a two-step process. So what I advise the companies that I work with who are interested in doing this is take this to the FDA first as a a first pre-sub, specifically focusing on the BDP designation, and then uh, follow that up with a second pre-sub, a more traditional pre-sub, where you cover those other things that I mentioned and that you and I have talked about many times before. I, I think that makes the process more inefficient. That's why I don't like it. And more importantly, I think that the breakthrough designation, a breakthrough device program needs to be taken into context with all those other things. But at least for right now, that's the way uh, the mechanics are working. I would like to see that change. But uh, at least for right now, that's the that's the path that I'm taking with the companies I'm working with.
1: Okay, so the promise of the program is that uh, it would i I'd ideally be a, a more expedited or a more efficient review with the f d a and i know it you maybe it's still a little too early to know uh you you mentioned you you have uh, several that are in with the f d a right now i mean give me your anecdote give me your gut i mean has has the process been smoother generally speaking has it been more predictable um um, what kind of anecdotes can you share about that? Well one,
0: one, one other thing so I can mention uh, one other thing I can mention in terms of making the process more um, uh, more efficient or even quicker for companies, uh, look, this is not a panacea. this is not a magic bill, a magic pill. As I said earlier, the requirements are essentially the same, whether you're in one of these special programs or not. However, one of the ways that we can speed access of the device to market, you know, as as you know, John, there's always been sort of a a healthy competition between the U.S. and the EU in terms of what devices and drugs come onto the market first in which place. Well, one of the ways that we're mitigating that time here in the U.S. is by shifting some of the clinical data requirements from pre-market to post-market. In other words, for uh class three devices that usually require clinical data and even for class two devices under a de novo or a 510k that might require a clinical data one of the advantages of getting into one of these programs is that you may be able to shift some or perhaps even all of your clinical data your clinical burden as i like to call it from pre-market to post-market and obviously that has advantages for the company um, as i said i can 't give you overall statistics with regard to the bdp program i 'm not even sure that if any of them are publicly available because the program is so new uh, and i 'm not sure as part of uh, Medufa if FDA is required to collect statistics uh, specifically on these programs, they might i just don 't know but I can tell you the Eap that 's been around for a little uh, a little longer um, when it was created in two thousand and fifteen there were 29 EAP applications. 17 were accepted. A dozen of them were rejected. And usually, those decisions were made within 30 days or less. So another advantage of the uh, the EAP and now the BDP as well is that if you put a, uh, a package together and submit it to the FDA for this designation, you will probably get a response, a decision from FDA within a pretty short period of time. Technically, according to the guidance, it's supposed to be 30 days or less, but like all of those statutory numbers, I take them with a big grain of salt. Sure. Bottom line, we're not talking about months and months and months. Right. So we should have a decision within a month or or maybe a little bit more.
1: Right. And, and I guess part of what I'm trying to, or what I want to, I, I guess, I'll use the word predict so to speak um, uh, is where where's the puck going so to speak you know where where is the FDA um, in this case where are they moving towards and you and I have talked a lot about you know today on this on these exciting programs the EAP and and the BDP um, but we've talked about other programs in the past we've talked about the accelerated 510k uh, the recent news on that and and some Yo, of the
0: other it a 510K.
1: The alternative, yeah, I'm sorry, um, and, and uh, some of the recent news on these different regulatory pathways, and and if if I'm to predict where I think the agency is trying to move towards is uh, being a little bit more progressive. Uh, I'll use the word innovative. Um, it may not be the right use of the word in this case, but but it's certainly progressive and giving clear options or or more expedited options to industry. On pathways to get products to market faster, uh, I think i I was at an event recently a couple months ago, and and there was heavy uh, FDA uh, participation in this particular event and actually Dr. Shuren um, presented and he was you know presenting via uh, a video conference but one of the things that he said was and i don 't remember the exact numbers but you know the FDA has been looking at at uh, the time that it takes to get new products to market in the U.S. And it was something like, you know, FDA or the U.S. was like 27th in the world as far as countries to bring new technologies to market. Uh, and, and FDA is very cognizant of that. And FDA's uh, hope and promise is to be number one in the world in bringing new innovative medical technologies to the wor- world. And it seems like these types of programs are in that spirit.
0: Well, I would agree, John. Uh, I think a lot of these programs are in that spirit, to use your phrase. Uh, But I'm not sure being number one in terms of, uh, you know, the quickest to market should be our overall goal. Because one of the things I learned uh, 25 years ago when I started out as an R&D engineer is you can have something good or you can have it fast or you can have it cheap. It's very difficult to have all three of those things at the same time. Uh, should our goal be simply to get products on the market as fast as we possibly can, or should our goal be to get products onto the market as fast as we can that are also safe and effective and do what they do and and so on and so on so there's a there 's a balance here there's a uh, there, there's there 's a fine line here and uh, listen i 'm not going to say anything you know specific about individuals at FDA and whatnot, but we cannot De-emphasize the importance of politics here, because uh, you know I alluded to a moment ago the uh, what I think is a healthy competition between the U.S. and the EU and other parts of the world as well, um, and the, the, the politicians are painfully aware of this. So, um, uh, so there is a
1: balance. For sure, for sure. So. Mike, uh, you know I appreciate your insights and and your experience uh, on these newer programs from the FDA. Any other closing thoughts on eap or or bdp or or twenty first century cures in general uh, that you'd like to share with our audience today
0: yeah, so just to wrap this up, John, uh, what I would like to leave the audiences with this uh, you know um, w- one of my many favorite regulatory mantras are. Uh, average regulatory professionals know the rules, the best regulatory professionals know the exceptions. So we are talking here about programs that are less commonly used, but in certain situations, in certain circumstances, they can be very important. They can be very valuable to both the company as well as to society and patients in general. So people need to be aware of these programs, at least in a general sense, And if you're seriously considering the use of one of these programs, specifically the BDP, take advantage of the BDP pre-sub option, take it to the FDA, um, provide a very strong justification as to why your particular device meets those criteria that we discussed earlier in, in today's podcast. I personally like to write this Um, as sort of a call and response. In other words, here's criteria number one. Here's where my device, uh, why my device fits. Here's criteria number two. Here's why my device fits. And so on. As I said, technically, you only need to meet one of those four, uh, criteria in the second batch. I try to admit as many as I can, even all of them, ideally. Uh, and remember for the BDP pre sub, you need to limit that, at least for right now, to just the BDP designation, um, which means that you can be fairly light on the device description, on your technology, on your regulatory strategy, on your uh, clinical burden. Uh, I guess, theoretically, you could leave all of that information completely out. I don't do that. I do, provi- I do try to provide FDA at least some of that information, but perhaps not as in, not in as much detail uh, as I would in a traditional pre-sub. Bottom line, John, no matter, uh, you know, w- no matter what pathway to market that I'm using, whether it's BDP or something else, um, I want to demonstrate to my friends on the FDA side of the table that I know what the heck I'm doing. Yes, yeah. I'll listen to their suggestions and, and so on, but at the end of the day, this is, this is my party, not theirs. And it's important to remember who ultimately is in control
1: here. Uh, great advice, and and folks, again, I want to uh, stress and reemphasize uh, the BDP, the EAP. These are not uh, these are not shortcut paths. You still have to do the work, and and a big part of that work is going to involve uh, solid design controls and risk management. That's a key aspect of of any device that's under development, and so making sure that you have uh, solid design history files established throughout the entire product realization process is so important. And that's one of the things that we do at Greenlight Guru is we built an eQMS software platform specifically for the medical device industry. And we have uh, designed specific workflows for managing design control activities and risk management. and, And how that dovetails into your entire QMS is a big part of what we do at Greenlight Guru. So if you'd like to learn a little bit more about how our program can help you uh, support your your regulatory pathways and, and these these exciting programs from the FDA and or as well as the traditional programs of PMAs and five ten Ks and if you're in Europe CE mark technical files, I would encourage you to go to www.greenlight.guru uh, to learn more about some of the things that we're doing. Mike. And, John, before we wrap yeah, this up, sure. can I
0: just add one last thing? I, I know we're running short on time. Of but just one last uh, piece of advice for your audience, because uh, I see a lot of people make this um, assumption or even mistake as well. Uh, we talked earlier about unmet clinical need. Well, a lot of people will assume that if other devices are on the market that are intended to do the same thing, there is the, that, that there is not an unmet clinical need, in other words, there cannot be any other device on the market that does that. I do not take such a literal interpretation to the phrase "unmet clinical need Many times I will argue that my device is serving an unmet clinical need, even if there are other devices on the market that do the same thing, if I can argue that let's be honest, the other devices out there are do a, a crappy job, right and I will ask physicians or surgeons or whoever it is, for example, to write letters as subject matter experts to basically say, yes, there are other devices on the market that say they can do this, but they don't do it very well. Therefore, there is an unmet clinical need for this new device. So I just wanted to throw that particular thing in there because I see a lot of companies do that. And uh, from a regulatory perspective, one of the big advantages, if you can be successful in convincing FDA that you're meeting an unmet clinical need, your regulatory burden is reduced even further. So obviously that's a huge advantage for the company.
1: Uh, Terrific advice. Folks, I want to thank uh, my uh, guest once again today, Mike Drews. Mike is with Vascular Sciences. You can reach out to him, find him on LinkedIn. Uh, If if you want to uh, get in contact with him and and can't find his contact information or his exciting articles and content on on various topics in the the regulatory realm, uh, just reach out to us and we'll get you connected. But Mike, uh, thank you once again.
0: Thank you, John, always a pleasure.
1: All right, folks, you've been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast, and uh, this is your host and founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight Guru, John Spear, and uh, tune in again, again, real soon.